Speaking of Christmas, how many of you are ready for Christmas? How many of you are not ready for Christmas? Okay, here are the stages of Christmas readiness, all right? One is I have finished my shopping. I've almost finished. I'm halfway done. I haven't even started what happened to Thanksgiving. All right, so number one, how many of you have finished your shopping? Overachievers. Number two, I'm almost finished, okay? You're leaning towards overachievement. Uh, halfway done. We're about halfway to Christmas. You are right in the ballpark of where you're supposed to be. I haven't even started. That's where I'm at. Right there is where I'm at. Okay, where's the Thanksgiving people? You're still like, I'm still eating turkey leftovers. I don't even know what you're talking about. So here we are. It's Christmas time. Holiday shopping season is upon us. Uh, Of course, you find uh, everyone's looking for the perfect gift for everyone on their list. Uh, We've survived Black Friday. We've survived Cyber Monday. Or uh, if you had as many emails as I did, it was Cyber Week. Cyber Tuesday, Cyber Wednesday. They just kept it rolling. So they have a whole Cyber Week now. Um, And of course, this will go through... uh, December the 24th, where you will see people out in a frenzy to get last-minute gifts, or maybe they're just procrastination at its finest, and they're waiting to the last minute. But between gifts and parties and decoration, Christmas in America seems to be getting more and more extravagant. Agree or disagree? Okay, we're all agreeing. So here's a few numbers to throw at you. According to a study performed by the National Retail Federation, Americans will spend more money this year than they did last year. Uh, Gallup reports that U.S. adults estimate that they will spend approximately, every adult will spend approximately $885 a person this Christmas season. Uh, Slightly lower than the expectations of 2017, but... The average uh, of the range of findings is this. You see a chart up on the screen. 33% expect to spend at least $1,000. 22 expect expect to spend $500 to $999. You see the statistics going down. Then, of course, 8% say they will not spend anything at all. And 5% are still confused and stuck in Thanksgiving mode. They're not sure if they will spend any money or not. It's estimated... uh, that $720 billion will be spent in 2018 for Christmas in the U.S. of A. Let me say that again. $720 billion. So, it should come as no surprise that uh, gifts are expensive, Christmas is expensive, and of course, with advertisement and sales and deals you just cannot refuse, there is a greater chance for impulse buys and overspending. So, why? I'll tell you, this was a difficult one to prepare right before Christmas. I was like, this is pitiful. So, so why? Why is it this way? Mark Buchanan, in an article in Christianity Today, said this. I belong to the cult of the next thing. It's dangerously easy to get enlisted. It happens by default, 
Not by choosing the cult, but by failing to resist it. The cult of the next thing is consumerism cast in religious terms. It has its own litany of sacred words. More, you deserve it. New, faster, cleaner, brighter. It has its own deep-rooted liturgy. Charge it, instant credit, no down payments, deferred payments, no interest for three months. It has its own preachers, evangelists, prophets, and apostles, admin, pitchmen, celebrity sponsors. It has, of course, its own shrines, chapels, temples, meccas, being malls, superstores, and club warehouses. It even has its own sacraments, credit cards and debit cards. It has its own ecstatic experience, the spending spree. The cult of the next thing central message proclaims, crave and spend for the kingdom of stuff is here. So why are we so tempted by stuff? Why are we so tempted by stuff? And that's what we're talking about tonight, stuff, uh, coveting stuff, coveting someone else's stuff. Uh, and to say that this is not something that you struggle with, that would be talking about what we talked about last week, and that's a lie. So um, we're going to start again tonight by reading the Ten Commandments, walking through all those. So if you will turn to Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to be starting in verse 1, and we'll work all the way down to verse 17. And God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, that is in the water underneath the, under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So the 10th commandment, uh, let's look at what does the commandment mean. We are not to covet someone else's stuff. So to start off with, let's look at what does the word covet mean. It's not a well-used word in America. Maybe it should be, but uh, 
To covet is to crave, to yearn for, to hanker after something that belongs to someone else. I had to look the word hanker up because I've never used that one. But it's a strong desire for or to do something. John McKay says this, coveting, uh, about coveting. He says, it's a consuming desire to possess in a wrong way something belonging to, one, to another. It's not sim- simply wanting something that we don't have. It's wanting something that someone else has as well. Uh, we can covet. Uh, we are made in the image of God. And God made us creatures of desire. Uh, so that's how he wired us. And so not all desiring, not all uh, desiring of something is bad. Some things are good. So here's some examples of good and bad. So, for example, uh, most of you probably had a desire for food today. So it ho- hopefully it urged you to eat something, right? That should remind us to eat. Uh, we should have a desire to do something creative, which should remind us to, to work. Our desire for friendships should drive us to community with other people, to um, desire friendships with other people. We have a desire for intimacy and maybe even sexual intimacy. This should drive us to get married. This should drive us to uh, stay married. Okay? Our healthiest desire ultimately should be that of knowing God. We should have a desire within us that should want to chase after God, want to pursue a relationship with God, and that should be the most important desire that we have. But like all things that God has created, um, Satan has messed them up. He has perverted our hearts and our minds to think that um, when we desire things that are not God-given, it switches to a point of sin in our life, and that's where we... Uh, those things get corrupted and turn into coveting, turning to desire of things that we're not supposed to have, maybe. Uh, the wrong thing at the wrong time, uh, the wrong reason. Uh, you see this a great example of this in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. Uh, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 3. It's just a few pages back, and we'll look at that. We see that God created... Man and woman, and he placed them in his garden to work it and to keep it. And we see that Satan, uh, the very first time that he tricked someone, that he perverted something that God had given, uh, so that Eve desired the fruit that God said was forbidden. So Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food... And that it was delight to the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. You can underline that. Desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. And it's not because she admired the piece of fruit. I'm sure it looked delicious. It tasted delicious. But it was something that God said was forbidden. And Satan tempted her to covet it by saying, you can be like God if you have it. So she desired something that she was not supposed to desire. And therefore, she saw it. Uh, She desired it. And so she took it and she ate it. Eve took the fruit to gain something that she was not intended to have. 
And ever since that day, we have been sinning ever since. It's something that has been passed down to us, and we come by it naturally. Uh, Watch children. I have a six-year-old son named Isaiah and a five-year-old daughter named Abigail. And uh, raising them for the past six years has been, of course, as you know, if you've had small children, a struggle in that uh, they play well together 70% of the time. But there is the 30% of the time where um, nothing will make my daughter want a toy more than seeing it in the hands of my son. And I've seen her try to take things away from my son. And of course, he'll come to me. Abigail took it away. Did you take it away? Yes. We'll give it back to him. He had it first. And she goes, well, I want it. I said, well, when Bubba puts it down, then you can play with it. You can pick it up and play with it. And it's instantly, it's not a, okay, that's great. It's a, I'm going to watch my brother. And as soon as he places that toy down on the ground, I am going to pick it up and show him that I have it. Sinful hearts, I tell you, it's terrible. So, But it's amazing to watch children. Uh, I know that Crystal and I, uh, we work here in the church, so we have a Mother's Day Out program on Monday and Wednesdays. And we used to spend a ton of time down in the nursery and watching those children with toys and they don't want it until someone else picks it up and the second someone else picks it up they desire it and so that's how we are as well so let's look at a few types of coveting a few types of things that we covet Uh, the first thing in in exodus it tells us that we are not supposed to you know covet our neighbor's donkey or his ox okay that's not something that i covet from many of my neighbors so This really is talking about material things. So if you wrote donkey and ox, you weren't supposed to write that. Material things. We covet stuff. Bigger houses, faster cars, better entertainment, clothes with designer labels, appliances with better features, the newest, fastest phone. Uh, And the list goes on and on. We see something newer and better. We desire to have it. Uh, We see someone with something, maybe a faster, newer car, and we think, I have to have one of those, right? So we desire those types of things. We desire stuff. If you want to not write material things, you can write stuff because that's really what it is. Secondly, uh, it's pleasures. One of the things it also says that we should not covet was our neighbor's wife. We are beings that seek pleasure. Okay? And many of those things that uh, we covet after uh, can be in the forms of lust. And the Bible forbids that we should uh, have those types of desires inside of us. That to covet the pleasures that God intended for good is a sin. Uh, lastly, anything. That's, that's what you should write down. Anything that is your neighbor's. This could be age, this could be health, this could be good looks or lack of there, Uh, this could be uh, intelligence, this could be the talents that someone has, maybe the job that someone has, maybe the marriage that someone has, maybe the singleness that someone has. We can covet uh, anything that our neighbor has. 
so I want you to think about the things that your hearts desires and whether or not those things that you desire uh, are causing you to sin or not. So we chase after this American dream. This consumption has become the American way of life. The problem is that most people uh, do not think that coveting is that big of a deal. Or to be honest, most people do not do not think about coveting at all. When you think about the Ten Commandments, coveting is probably the one that if you could get the rest of them correct, you would probably forget coveting. We just don't think it's that big of a deal. As one commentator confessed, It has occurred to me that whoever approved the final order of these commandments didn't have much of a sense of suspense or climax. He put all of those dramatic, intriguing sins like stealing, adultery, and murder first. Then he ended with coveting. It would have seemed more logical to begin with a bland, throwaway sin like coveting and then work up to the big stuff. But let's not forget that coveting is definitely in the Ten Commandments. It's in there. And I believe that it did end well. Coveting is a big deal. And it was thought of enough that it is included in the ten. Mark 7. We're going to go there in a, towards the end. But Jesus is going to say that coveting is right up there with all the big dogs. And Jesus included it with the big dogs. And coveting leads to uh, a plethora of other sins. Uh, when we have such an intense desire for someone else's stuff then we are not content with what we have. We're not happy with what God has given us. And it leads us down a path to sin. And a good example of this is the story of Achan. We just so happened to talk about that a couple of weeks ago when we talked about stealing. Uh, Turn to Joshua chapter 7. So here we have Joshua uh, has been handed... uh, the authority to go over into the promised land, to start taking it over. Moses is left behind, and Joshua is leading the people against Jericho. And he tells the the men, you're going to have this victory, and I want you to go in and take all of this plunder, and it's to go into the storehouses for the temple. It's to be set up for the the temple's purposes, uh, and then you're to... Wipe out everything else. But you're supposed to take the plunder for the temple. And we know that Achan uh, saw something, uh, some treasure, some stuff. And he coveted it. And he desired it. And he made a plan. And he took some and he hid it under his tent. And then, of course, they go into the next battle. And... As they go into the next battle, where they should have had an easy victory, Jericho was an impossible victory, they had a success, and then they go into this battle where they should have an easy victory, and because of the sin that is in the camp, they suffer defeat. And the God and Joshua have this encounter, and he says, someone has sinned in the camp, and I'm not going to be with you, I'm not going to give you victory until that's taken care of. And it all points back to Achan, They draw all the people back and say, someone has done this. Whoever did it, come forward. And they dwindle it down, down, down. And it comes straight to Achan. 
And this is uh, verse 20. Chapter 7, verse 20. This is how Achan answered Joshua. Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak of Shinar, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing, weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them, and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside of my tent with the silver underneath. So Achan saw something that he wasn't supposed to have. He desired it. He plotted to steal it. He took it. He hid it under his tent. And, and of course, you know that he and his family, they end up being stoned for this, for, for, their, uh, for his sin. And um, it's just a sad story in that the very next battle that they fight... God says, plunder and take whatever you want. If you take it, if you find it, keep it. So if he would have just waited a little bit, it would have all been okay. But we see that uh, he desired it so badly that he started playing this through his mind. He plotted to take it. He came up with a plan and he acted. He had many chances to make it right, but his heart was messed up. And that heart being messed up all started with a desire to have something that he wasn't supposed to have. It all started with coveting. And that's exactly how it works with us, with a sinful desire. We see something we want. We think about that thing that we want. We think about how we can get that thing that we want. Uh, we imagine life with that stuff that we desire. We're obsessed with having it. And of course, we then go to do to any measures to, to obtain it. James chapter 1, 14 and 15 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives forth, brings forth death. So, enticed by your own desire, uh, then it gives birth to sin. Sin brings forth death. So I want you to consider these two questions. Uh, And these are in your notes. And these are very healthy for us to ask about anything in our lives that we are pursuing. First of all, what does my heart desire? I want you to think about the things that you daydream about. The things that you desire. The things that you want. uh, Whether it be our neighbor's stuff or something that God has provided for us. But secondly... Where will that desire lead me in the end? We need to really examine our hearts and and consider, why do I want this stuff? Is it for my own guilty pleasure? Is it for, uh, am I being selfish in that desire to obtain it? Or is God really wanting me to have that? So let's talk about the inside-out rule just for a second. We've talked about the inside-out rule all the way through uh, this series. And the other nine commandments condemn outward actions like making idols, working on the Sabbath, killing people, uh, stealing, lying. So there's these outward actions that are very specific. Don't do this. And then, of course, as we talked about the inside-out rule, we know that the Bible does not just say don't steal, but it also wants you to do something else, something interior. And so... The first nine generally start 
on the outside and they work their way towards the inside. As we learn how to apply those to our lives from the inside out, it starts on the outside and it works to the inside. The 10th commandment is different because it starts on the inside and works its way to the the outside with our actions. This is in your notes. The commandment about coveting is not concerned with what we do, or at least not at first, but with what we want to do. This commandment of coveting is not concerned with what we do at first, but with what we want to do. This commandment exposes our internal desires. And it has led to many commentators arguing that the 10th commandment is really in the rest of the commandments. And it should just be, you know, just, okay, you really should not covet. Coveting is in all of the other nine. So why do we have this coveting thing on the end? You know, my dad called me this week and uh, one of my... One of the things my dad really enjoys doing is he likes to talk to me about what I'm studying in God's Word. He really likes to argue with me about what I'm studying in God's Word. But I said, well, right now, currently, I'm studying the 10th commandment. He goes, ah, coveting. And he made a very, very genius statement, so much so that I'm going to quote it tonight. He says, this was God's way of saying, even if you can obey the rest, you're going to mess this one up. And I was like, okay, I'm going to have to write that down and remember that. The 10th commandment makes very plain what the other commandments only imply. And here, this is also in your notes. God requires an inward obedience just as much as an outward obedience. And the 10th commandment is very, very plain in this. God does care about what we desire in our hearts. And just because your actions may not be doing those things, the attitude of your heart is held accountable for that. And God is showing us that we can be guilty of sin even in our heart. This proves that God does judge the heart. If God had not given us the 10th commandment, I think we might look at the commandments that God has given to us and be guilty of thinking that it's just about actions. It's just about what we do and not about our heart. But the 10th commandment does prove that God judges the heart. Martin Luther says it this way. The last commandment then is addressed not to those who would consider wicked ro- the world would consider wicked rogues, but precisely to the most upright to people who wish to be commended as honest and virtuous because they have not offended uh, against the preceding commandments. And this 10th commandment seems to have that effect on the Apostle Paul. Uh, flip over to Romans chapter 7. Paul went through the first part of his life assuming that he could measure up perfectly to God's law. He didn't murder, he didn't commit adultery, he did not steal, he did not lie, or at least not outwardly. He had not done those things. But when Paul came to the 10th commandment, the law exposed his sin. Uh, Romans 7, starting in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. 
Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So here's Paul. He's got it together pretty well. He's like, I'm following it. You know, it, this story reminds me a little bit of the one where uh, you have the young man come to Jesus and he says, I'm going to follow you. I want to I be your disciple. And he says, well, then go sell all you have, give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And it says the man went away sad because he had much. He desired those things more than this. And, you know, when we think about breaking the commands, when we think about, I'm not doing murder, I'm not doing a lot of these things, coveting really should expose a lot of sin in our lives. When we really stop and think about the things that we covet, the things that we desire, man, it, that's what studying this one really did to me. I was just like, I started examining my own life, and I was like, man, I... I fail so much. So we should want to ask ourselves those questions and realize that God does require an inward obedience just as much as an outward obedience. Hopefully the 10th commandment leads us straight to the same place that it did with Paul. To realize that we are a sinner in need of a Savior. Uh, Francis Schaeffer said it like this. Thou shalt not covet is the internal commandment which shows the man who thinks himself to be moral that he really does need a savior. The average, quote unquote, moral man who has lived comparing himself to other men and comparing himself to a rather easy set of rules can feel like Paul, that he is getting along all right. But suddenly, when he is confronted with the inward command not to covet, he is brought to his knees. We all see covetousness in our own lives. We see it in the lives of other people. Uh, One of the things that I found myself doing, and I'll just admit this up front, is I started looking around at how other people were coveting for Christmas. My children, I was just like, you want too much, right? I want this for Christmas and this, and I'll make a list, right? And you look at other people, and you're like, that's just terrible. And I'm just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Remember to look in the mirror, Corey, Corey, because you are just as guilty of breaking this command. Uh, So the positive negative. The first thing is we need to realize coveting things that the Lord has not given us is a sin. Last week, Landon briefly mentioned Ahab. He wanted the vegetable garden next to the palace. He started uh, this downward circle of coveting what he did not have which led him to scheming and plotting and a whole list of other things. The king had, without a doubt, the nicer things in life. But rather than give thanks for what he had, he became obsessed for the one thing that he did not have. Which leads us to the second point. We need to be content with what the Lord has blessed us with. I was studying this afternoon for my Sunday school lesson on Sunday. And a spoiler alert for you, but we're going to be talking about Joseph again uh, if you're going through the gospel project. And this really made me think about Joseph in that regardless of whether he was dad's favorite, 
he was sold as a slave, whether he was uh, getting in, he was in the good graces of Potiphar, whether he was put in prison, whether he was forgotten about, whether he was second in command of Egypt. You know, this roller coaster of emotions that Joseph is going to go through. He was content with God. He never was angry with God. Or if it did, it didn't say it in the scripture. But he was content with God. Regardless of if he was in shackles or if he was in second in command of Egypt. He was content with what God had given him. So much of our frustration in life, I think, comes from wanting things that God has not given us. And in our selfish desire, we concentrate on what we don't have rather than what we do. And, of course, that leads us to the whole, if only. If only I had that raise. If only I had that job. If only I had that relationship. If only I had that, uh, those children. If only I had... Uh, Newer this or newer that. If only, if only, if only. And we get stuck in that rut. Billionaire Nelson Rockefeller was asked how much money it would take for him to be happy. And he answered, well, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Another billionaire, Solomon, in Ecclesiastes 5 says, He who loves money will not, sat- will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. It doesn't matter how much you have or how much you don't have. If you're not content with what God has given you, you're going to be miserable and you're going to covet something else. So, if you want to not covet, you must truly be satisfied with what God has given you. Let's look at a few Old Testament and New Testament examples. Turn to Proverbs 28. We have the example of Ahab in 1 Kings 21. Uh, In Micah, we have a warning against those who covet and do evil and what their outcome is. I'll let you read that one a little later. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, don't turn there, but we have uh, the story of David and Bathsheba. And David staying home rather than going off to battle. And then taking a stroll up on a rooftop. And he coveted things that he was not supposed to covet. And that God did not want him to have. And we know that it led to a whole lot of heartache in David's life. And a whole lot of sin. So a glance. A desire. And it led to a lot of heartache in his life. So Proverbs 28 says. A stingy man hastens after wealth. And does not know what po- that poverty will come upon him. You know, we so much desire wealth in America. And I know that uh, it's not a sin to have wealth. But if you covet and covet and covet more and more and more, uh, it's a heart issue. And I would just say that uh, check yourself on those things and hopefully it does not lead poverty upon you. That you just lose it all uh, at the end of your life. That you're empty, completely empty and alone. So uh, turn to Mark chapter 7. Matthew 6 talks about where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. Um, and you know, 
to go along with that verse. It talks about storing up treasures in heaven. Mark chapter 7. Jesus is going to be talking about sins that defile a person. So, and he said, uh, starting in verse 20. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For, for from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Okay. So as we go back to Exodus 20 and you look at that list and you say, well, they started with the good ones and they ended with a weak one. Here we see Jesus keying in that coveting is, he lists them right there with the rest of them. And he says, this is where it starts. It starts with your heart, the heart of man. In the heart of man comes all of these things. So we need to check our heart. James chapter 4 verse 3 says this. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your own passions. Again, it's all about the heart. And as we've looked at the Ten Commandments, especially the Tenth Commandment, we know that it's a heart issue and it uh, has to do with uh, our hearts. And I've said this uh, through all of my years of youth ministry. I told students over and over and over, if I could teach them to do one thing, okay, more than anything else, if I could teach them to do one thing, it would be to love God's Word, to spend time reading God's Word, to spend time studying God's Word, to spend time in God's Word. Because I think if you're going to spend time in God's Word, it's amazing how much that just spills over into all the other areas of your life. And it helps you to daily check your heart. It helps you to daily... Look at your own life, see where you don't match up, and try to get uh, to where you're walking uh, step with step with Jesus. And so that's one thing I always told them, and that's one thing I'll tell you. If you want not to covet, it's amazing how spending time in God's Word and spending time uh, praying to God, it will work on a plethora of sins and help your heart Uh, not desire the things of the flesh. So let's look at how Jesus obeyed this fully. First of all, Jesus, his greatest desire was to bring honor and glory to the Father. Coveting probably stems from anxiousness. When we think that we need something or we think we must have something. In Matthew chapter 6 Uh, You have this whole section of scripture in which Jesus is telling us to not be anxious about stuff, not be anxious about what we will eat, not to be anxious with what we will wear. But he tells us in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. When it comes to stuff, we are to seek first the kingdom of God and then everything else will take care of itself. If our first concern is about the kingdom of God, if our first concern is our relationship with God, if in the same way that Jesus, his first desire was to bring honor and glory to the Father, not with stuff, he was desired about honoring his Father. And that should be our desire. That should be our number one desire. Uh, Secondly, Jesus was content with what the Father 
with the Father and everything that he gave him. And let's be honest, in terms of stuff, it wasn't much. Jesus walked um, through this earth. He didn't have a whole lot of things. Uh, It made me think about uh, Jesus as he was hanging on the cross. And they took the only thing that he had was his clothes. And they cast lots for it to see who got it. He was left with nothing. Um, Turn to Luke chapter 9. This will give you an idea of Jesus' contentment with the Father and all that he had given to him and and what he really didn't have. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. Since they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was content with the Father. He was content with what the Father had given him. He knew what his purpose was. He knew what he was here to do. And he was content when he had things. He was content when he didn't. Uh, Last verse. Let's end with this. Philippians chapter 3. We'll end with this thought from Paul. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Paul said this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The treasure that our hearts should desire more than any other is that of Jesus Christ himself. And that's exactly what we celebrate this time of year at Christmas you know, I'm glad that we exchange gifts. I love giving gifts. I love giving gifts to other people. I love to see their face when I give gifts. But the gift that we are to desire above any other gift is that of God sending his son uh, to be born of a virgin. And we celebrate that at Christmas time every single year. So I hope that he is our desire, that he is what we chase after that he is what we want more than anything else in the world. So let's pray.